Welcome to the Murthy Teleconference Series. We are delighted and honored to have so many of you participating in our teleconference today. The topic is corporate downsizing, layoffs, and other options, both in the non-immigrant visa and in the immigrant visa context. We believe that today's teleconference will be wonderful and helpful for anyone and everyone, whether you're an employer, hiring foreign nationals, or an employee that has been subject or is concerned about a termination or a layoff. Of course, I don't want to even slightly imply that it's wonderful for anyone to be in a position to have to lay off or deal with situations or problems or have to be laid off from a job. But to the extent that something happens to you, I think we have some of the most amazing experts here with me this afternoon to go over it with you all. We have today on my panel with me, attorney Aaron Finkelstein, who many of you have known over the last decade or so with the Murthy Law Firm. He's both the assisting managing attorney and an incredibly brilliant and sharp lawyer. I also have the pleasure of Janelle Oklu, another brilliant addition to our firm who's been with us for, I would say, half a decade at this point, or so it feels. Uh, she does a lot of the 485 work and complex issues, um, and we just have a super panel for you. So by way of background, um, you know, we see this situation all the time where employers, because of the economy or other factors, do not have sufficient work for the H-1B employees, and they want to know what are the consequences if the employees are not assigned any work or don't have work. As all of us know, under Department of Labor regulations and USCIS regulations, the employer is prohibited by law from benching H-1 employees and not paying them when there is no work in the company. The employer by law must pay the guaranteed minimum hours with the required Department of Labor prevailing wage, even for non-productive time. And here's the catch, unless the H-1B workers are not available for work because of personal or non-related work factors, such as the workers' own voluntary request for time off, pregnancy, family medical leave act, personal situations, taking care of an ill parent, what have you, or other circumstances where the worker is unable to work for medical reasons. So Janelle, mm -hmm. what are the conditions or circumstances where this could occur and where would it not occur? Can you just explain a little bit more? Well, sure, Sheila. Um, uh, basically, if you're talking about non-productive conditions that are related to employment, basically uh, situations such as there's a lack of assigned work, there just isn't enough work for the workers to do, or the worker doesn't have the right permit, they're waiting for a permit, or maybe they're studying for a licensing exam. In those types of situations, the employer is actually liable for the wage. Wow, that's pretty scary mm -hmm. because most people say, hey, if you don't have the license to practice as an engineer or as whatever, the professional license, you mean I have to pay the full salary? And the answer is unfortunately yes. yes. Yes, the answer is yes. However, if the employee is outside the U.S. while working for the employer, then, of course, the employer is not required to pay the U.S. wage, or uh, the, uh, the U.S. prevailing wage. Also, if the uh, employee is outside the U.S. for reasons not related to work, of course, there's also no payment obligation there, Okay, too. so basically no payment if you're outside the U.S. Maybe you have to comply with some other law, some other payment, but you're off the hook as far as U.S. Department of Labor wages are concerned. Terrific. Okay, so if, uh, Aaron, if the employer must downsize and lay off H-1B workers, what are the consequences for the employer? 
Well, Sheila, that's a good question, and it's kind of a tough one because, of course, employers want to be as fair and reasonable as possible to their employees, but they also have some real legal obligations that they have to be concerned about. Um, the obligation for the employer is to pay for no, the obligation for the employer to pay for non-productive time basically stops after a bona fide termination of the employment. Uh, once the H-1B employee is terminated, the company is required to immediately notify immigration and they should withdraw that they're withdrawing the labor condition application, the LCA, um, uh, the be when they're withdrawing the LCA. The best evidence of this type of termination uh, is that the employer notified the USCIS is one, that the employment relationship has been terminated, two, that the petition should be canceled, and three, also that the employer has been provided with a reasonable, that the employee has been provided with a reasonable cost of return. Uh, this cost of return does not necessarily... Return transportation? Return transportation to the home country, yes, absolutely. It does not have to include the, um, the dependence of the employee. Well, except it's not been subject to a lawsuit, so we don't know. It might, but most, most experts believe it was, was not required, okay? It's, it's important because some employers feel like, hey, I want to be helpful, I want to do something. But the truth is that notifying the USCIS really helps to avoid this concept of benching without pay that could potentially raise some major issues later on down the road. Okay, uh, that's helpful. Uh, I guess just to be very clear, not only is the LCA that must be withdrawn by the employer, but the employer must also notify USCIS of the H-1B termination. Send a letter saying we are revoking the H-1B petition. And you kind of glossed over that, so I just wanted to be sure that both would be terminated, the H-1B petition and the LCA. Okay, so Janelle, mm -hmm. if the company must downsize and lay off H-1B workers... Is the terminated H-1B employee then able to maintain status by jumping and finding another employer or another job, maybe even with the same company? Is there any kind of magic grace period allowed by law? Because it's really unfair to say, I got terminated today at 5, I found out at 5 o'clock in the evening, and now the government's saying, you should have packed up before 5 o'clock when I didn't even know I was going to be terminated. Is there any grace period? What, what, are, the, what are the options okay. from the employer and the employee's perspective? Because presumably a caring, good employer wants to take care of their employees right. and not leave them high and dry. Okay. Sure, Sheila. I understand uh, the question. And, of course, that is a very unfortunate circumstance for the H-1B worker who finds um, himself or herself in that position. Unfortunately, though, there is no grace period that's officially allowed in the law by USCIS. Um, also, at this time, uh, the USCIS doesn't have a systematic approach um, to handle such cases where an employee has been terminated by one employer before uh, they get a job with another um, employer. However, I will say this, and that is that um, whereas there's no official grace period, technically, although the employer, once the employer-employee relationship no longer exists, the individual falls out of status, okay? The person will be out of status. However, if the person still has a valid I-94, 
then it's possible that you, the USCIS is going to allow him or her uh, a reasonable a ta uh, time to file an extension of stay with a new employer. And is there any definition of what a reasonable time is? Unfortunately, no. <laughs> That's another gray area. Uh -huh. So reasonable time has not been defined by the USCIS, but it is something that will be adjudicated on a case-by-case -case basis. We'll just say practically, the sooner the better. As soon as you're laid <laughs> off, find another job and have your new employer file that new H-1B petition. But it's easier said than done in a bad economy when there's That's no true. jobs and nobody's hiring right now. Uh, okay, so what are there any other kind of extraordinary circumstances or anything that would work? Well, it is true that under law, um, when uh, the, the new employer, when the new petitioner is filing, if uh, the person is dealing with extraordinary circumstances, then uh, the USCIS uh, will uh, basically excuse that prior period. But uh, whether or not a termination of prior employment constitutes extraordinary circumstance, that's also a gray area. It's going to have to be dealt with on a case-by-case -case basis. I would think if I was terminated, I would think that's a pretty extraordinary circumstance, but yeah. I guess the government doesn't. Mm -hmm. Okay. Um, and, and the whole issue about a facially valid I-94 um, is important for us to remember because even if you are out of status and you've been terminated or laid off or the employer as a, as a company you had to terminate an employee, the employee itself, even though the employee becomes out of status, by law, the employee is not considered to be unlawfully present. Mm -hmm. And people get confused because it is a very confusing concept. It's a legal concept. So even though you're out of status, you're not unlawfully present, which means that the three-year and ten-year bars, if you leave the country, do not start against you. I know this is sounding like a little bit of mumbo-jumbo for somebody who doesn't completely appreciate it, and that's why it's very important for you to have the most incredible legal help on your Absolutely. team, on your side, that can guide you through some of this as you're figuring out complex ways to avoid dealing with the, the situation or to minimize your payment obligations or to keep yourself in legal status. Well, also one important thing I thought would be important, useful to mention is that there is a 10-day grace period both before starting of the H-1B and at the very end when the H-1B. So if you have a three-year H-1, you can enter 10 days before the start date. So in most cases, if it's October 1 of 2009, for example, you can actually enter the United States on September 21st to find an apartment, settle down, unpack, etc. And then if you have it for three years till September 30th, 2012, you can actually stay for till October the 10th to, again, get rid of your apartment, sell, do whatever. So the law gives you the additional 10 days grace period. But that's the only grace period that's cleanly and clearly allowed under the law. Um, Aaron. You haven't spoken for a little while now, and I want to make sure. Are there any instances when an H-1B employee with a facially valid I-94 would be considered to be unlawfully present? Well, thank you, Sheila. You know, unlawful presence, as you mentioned, as Janelle had mentioned before, is much more serious than out of status. Uh, and it's one that people have to be very, very careful about. If the employer goes out of business, the approved petition may be considered automatically revoked. And in that situation, the beneficiary's H-1B status expires on the same date that it goes out of business, uh, that the employer would go out of business. In this case, the beneficiary would be accruing unlawful presence from that moment in time. Uh, in addition, if the beneficiary would receive 
any notification of revocation or cancellation in any way from any government agency officially saying that this I-94 is no longer facially valid, the employee would also go out of status from that particular moment in time. Okay, but it says here the approved petition may be considered automatically revoked, so that means it doesn't have to be? Well, I think that the safest, I agree with you that there's an argument to be made, and as good lawyers, you have to make the best argument that you can, but the safest thing to do is to assume that if your employer went out of business and you have a facially valid I-94, better be safe than sorry, assume that you are accruing unlawful presence, and do what you need to do to return back to a good and valid status. Okay. And what are the most important consequences, Aaron, of being out of status? Well, I think the most important consequence of being out of status is, number one, there's the rule that you have to be in status to extend status. So therefore, if you want to extend your status, change status, uh, apply for adjustment of status, apply for a green card application, uh, anything along those lines you would be precluded from being able to do at this point in time, which is why Janelle uh, mentioning, Attorney Okua mentioning the regulation about extraordinary circumstances that allows for an exception is so important because normally speaking, if you're out of status, you can't change status or change employers in the U.S. You would be required to leave the country to pick up a visa and come back in. Okay. Uh, one quick point of introduction and very important point that I actually uh, did not make because I presume everybody recognizes my very distinct voice is I am Sheila Murthy, the founder and president of the Murthy <laughs> Law Firm. And just as important that today's uh, teleconference, like all of our teleconferences, are copyrighted material and it is illegal and unauthorized for you to tape, record, or use any other method to duplicate or record today's teleconference. And we appreciate your cooperation and in complying with the law. Okay, let's jump back to you, Janelle. Okay. What if the employer continues to pay the wages and the insurance or, or pay for vacation time after the employee's termination? Is then the employee now in legal status? Unfortunately, Sheila, no. Sorry to be the bearer of bad news. But an H-1B worker, if you'll remember, is admitted to the U.S. for the sole purpose of providing services to his or her United States employer. So once... This H-1B worker is no longer providing these services because he or she has been terminated. Then the H-1B holder is considered to no longer be in valid non-immigrant status. That person is out of status, even if the employer is generously offering to still pay for health insurance or other benefits. Sure, sure. Okay, Aaron, I know that being an employer myself, and I've been an employee before that most of my life, um, not most of my life, I mean most of my life after college. Um, from an employer's point of view, obviously layoff, layoffs are the absolute last resort. Nobody wants to ever do that. Um, but what if the employer just doesn't have enough work for the H-1B employees and they had just, as an employer, you know, you have all these H-1 workers and you just cannot afford to meet payroll because you're not getting contracts, work is drying up. What options are available for the employer and what, how does it help the employee? Well, I think an employer can certainly consider a reduction in salary as long as it's consistent with the law. Certainly they can consider a reduction in hours. In other words, part-time or three-quarter time H-1B workers are permitted. 
but in no way, in no means should they ever consider involuntary unpaid vacation for the H-1B employees. So a lot of times when we see that there's involuntary unpaid vacation, if the USCIS finds out that it was, you know, mandated upon the employee or it was somehow illegal, unethical, fraud, fraud or misrepresentation, it could have serious, severe consequences for trying to conspire against the U.S. government. So it's important to remember that America is a nation of laws and we all need to be extra, extra careful because in a lot of other countries and cultures, uh, the attitude towards law and the legal system is a little bit different and people routinely uh, we see where people pay very severe consequences for what they think are irrelevant or minor transgressions that can have very serious consequences, both for the employer and the employee. So, Aaron, what may be required in case of a reduction in salary? Well, if there's a decrease in an H-1B employee's wage, that could affect the validity of the employee's H-1B petition um, if it be drops below something that's called the required wage. And I just want to be clear that if it affects the validity of the petition, number one, it could have an impact on the employee and on the employer as well, not meeting certain wage requirements. Uh, the employer is required to pay the H-1B workers a required wage. A required wage is the greater of the actual wage or the prevailing wage, uh, that which is listed on the labor condition application. Uh, if, the, that re if the reduction in salary does not uh, does not put the H-1B worker below the required wage, then there's no need to take any remedial measure, there's no need to amend the LCA or to take any other action. However, if the salary reduction results in a wage below the required wage that's indicated on the LCA, on that labor condition application, a new LCA would be required and an amended H-1B may be required as well. Uh, I think, you, you know, that cover. well, in addition to that, if the salary is reduced across the board and similarly and employed U.S. workers are also affected, then the actual salary for the position at your company has changed. And if this amount is below the wage indicated on the LCA, again, a new LCA is required and an amended H-1B petition may also be required as well. Okay, okay. So coming to amended H-1s, because I think that could be an, a valuable tool to protect both the employer and the employee, because that way the employer can afford to pay the lesser number of hours. So for an H-1B, for example, that's showing a full-time 40-hour work week, maybe by amending it to show a 20 or 25-hour work week as the range or putting a range of you know, 10 to 20 or 10 to 30 hours would help the employer to stay in business, continue the employee on H-1B status and give both sides protection. So Janelle, are the fees mm -hmm. quite different for filing an H-1B amended petition? From the government's point of view? Well, Sheila, sure. If the H-1B petition is amended without requesting an extension of status, basically it's just being amended because of uh, the salary or the reduction in hours, then the application only requires the $320 base filing fee. The amendment without a request for extension is exempt from the $500 fraud fee, and it's also exempt from the training fee, be it the $750 or the $1,500. So this can be substantial savings. It's almost for most employers, Definitely. over 25 employees, you're talking a minimum savings of over $2,000, mm -hmm. about $2,000 plus dollars. Uh, or just 2000 at least, and so it is a valuable tool. And so be careful and 
file the H-1B amendment because it can be incredibly useful and save you thousands and thousands of dollars, whether you're an employee or whether you're an employer. And if you're an employee, it can save you from falling out of status and not maintaining your H-1 status if your employer only has 10 or 20 hours of work per week for you or can afford to pay that without shutting down. And what, uh, Janelle, what may be required in case of a reduction in hours? Okay, uh, sure, Sheila. Well, basically, as you had said before, one option is to go for uh, possibly a range, to go from a full 40 hours a week to part-time. With a range, for example, say 10 hours a week, even up to 35 hours uh, a week, the employer can amend uh, the H-1B to reflect that. Now, one thing to keep in mind is that if an H-1B petition indicates a range of hours, okay, and the part-time employee is benched, the employer must pay the non-productive employee for at least the average, the average of number of hours of that range normally worked by the H-1B worker, provided that such average is within the range indicated. So, as we said before, really avoid benching. Benching is just don't do it because uh, if um, so, instead of benching employees, the employer should assign work to the H-1B employees at at least the minimum number of hours in the range. So then it's safe. So if the mm-hmm. range says ten to twenty hours, as long as mm-hmm. the employee is working and working mm-hmm. for at least ten hours, hours in that hours. week. The employee is maintaining valid H-1B status and the employer is legally protected and cannot be slapped with penalties or fines for violating H-1B laws. That's exactly right. Okay. One thing I just wanted to add is when they're doing the range or they're doing the averages for people that are benched, it's from the time that the amendment was made. In other Mm. words, when the range was created. Not from the time if the employee had been a a 40-hour-a-week employee for two years, for three years, that you don't count that time when you're estimating the average time that the employee worked. So that's something that's helpful if you create a range of 15 to 40 hours, for example, 15 to 35 hours. And for the first two or three months, unfortunately, the employee's benched. So since there's no previous set amount to give this kind of estimate, you're able to start and to look at, well, with no amount, the minimum range, with the minimum amount on the range should be sufficient. That would be a good argument, but we have to see in case law because we don't have a lot of case law on many of these issues. And so the, we are sharing with you what is clearly allowed. And, of course, any smart, good, knowledgeable, bright lawyer or legal person on your team, whether you're rep- working with the employer or the employee or both parties, as in most H-1B or green card cases, where we have, by law, a legal and ethical duty to protect and help both sides in uh, getting, uh, you know, getting maintaining status and protecting and saving the employer money, but saving the employee's legal status. Uh, our goal is, of course, to make things work in a win-win type of relationship. Aaron, what may be required in case of involuntary unpaid vacation or benching? Well, we spoke previously that the Department of Labor Regulations prohibits benching of H-1B employees. So if an H-1B employee is in non-productive status due to a decision by the employer, including lack of work assignments or any other reason, the employer must still pay the full salary amount due according to what's considered the required wage. The employer, however, is not required to pay for wages for non-productive status if the status is due to conditions unrelated to the employment unless a different status of federal law, such as Family Medical Leave Act or something else similar, mandates that type of payment. Uh, I think as a result... Well, the Family Medical Leave Act does not mandate payment, so... 
Okay, but that basically, if there is, example, yeah. if there's another law that requires payment, they're required to pay. But if there's no other law, and it's because of the employee's voluntary decision not to work, mm -hmm. then the employer would not have such a requirement. To and if you recollect, that's how we started off the discussion. So that also, you know, if that's true, then it helps the employer. Yes. Right. But I also think that as a result of the Department of Labor's benching regulations, the companies cannot force unpaid vacations of temporary or temporary sh of temporary shutdown in order to re remain to remain compliant. I think the H-1B employee must continue to be paid the required wage on the LCA during the temporary shutdown or mandatory vacation uh, until things pick back up again. Okay, okay. Uh, thanks, Aaron. Janelle, is it okay for uh, an employee to start working for a new employer before the H-1B petition is filed or approved? Okay. Well, generally the answer is yes. Under the AC-21 provisions, um, an employee may start work for a new employer upon filing of the petition. Now, so once filing again, is required. Filing yeah, is required. filing. That, that term filing has also not been defined. Uh, but the safest thing is to wait until you actually get the receipt notice so that you know your petition is with the USCIS. Um, under AC-21, a person who is already in H-1B status can accept new employment, start working for the new employer immediately upon filing, once we, as we said before, as long as three conditions are met. And that is, one, the person was lawfully admitted to the U.S. Two, uh, this particular uh, petition is not a frivolous H-1B or other uh, petition. Um, and it's filed before the date of expiration of the period of stay authorized by the Attorney General and is pending for new employment. And uh, three, as long as the person has not never been employed without authorization in the U.S. before the filing of that petition. Okay, okay, that's pretty helpful. Uh, and I know most people think of AC-21 as covering just the AC-21 green card portability provisions, but in fact... The American Competitiveness in the 21st Century Act, or AC-21, as it is referred to, um, protects and gives this freedom to employers. So we no longer, unlike the prior law, have to actually wait for the approval. Right. Remember, before October 2000, just a little over eight years ago, if you didn't get the approval, you can start working. Now you can actually work upon filing because it takes a government six to eight months sometimes to make a decision. Super, uh, Janelle. Aaron, let's now jump to the immigrant context. I know you've spent a good eight or nine years of your life focusing at this law firm exclusively on the immigrant processing, on labor certification, I-140, and that is your forte. And, and I think you're, you're brilliant and knowledgeable, and I think you know a lot more than nine out of ten immigration lawyers, and sometimes mm -hmm. I'm convinced you know a lot more than I do. <laughs> and I probably I shouldn't announce this, but the truth is a really good professional knows their limitations and knows when somebody else is focusing 100% in a specific area. So I know, Aaron, you're dying to say something. Oh, my goodness, you can't see me blushing over there. <laughs> well, okay, so now, Aaron, in the immigrant context, if an employee has been sponsored for the green card, and the employee is using the employment authorization document, what happens if the employer, because of financial or other reasons, either shuts down or has to terminate employment? What happens from the employer and the employee's perspective? Well, I think if he's using an EAD, if you have a labor certification approved, if it's based on labor certification, an I-140 that's approved, or debatably approvable, and a 45 that's pending for more than 180 days, you have the ability to do a portability. You meet the trigger or the criteria for portability. 
uh, and you should have the flexibility to be able to pick up your job and to move to another company as long as you'll be performing job duties in the same or similar job classification. Okay, and uh, we can get into a whole detailed analysis of what is job classification and all of that. And by the way, there are some amazingly useful articles on Murthy.com and in the Murthy Bulletin where we have tried to explain a lot of very complex AC21 portability types of issues uh, that might help both the employee and also an employer that is trying to make sure that their employees are not left high and dry. So Janelle, can an employee request permanent immigrant portability for like self-employment? Um, yes. Yes, uh, Sheila. If uh, the employee can invoke their AC21 portability, basically to be able to port their green card case, um, they can be self-employed. Um, in the self-employment situation, of course, um, as Aaron stated before, the individual has to be working in a same or similar occupational classification. So as long as the work that you're doing for yourself is also in a same or similar occupation, it is allowed to be self-employed. Okay, super. And Janelle, what about a follow-up? Can an employee request portability more than once? The answer is yes again. Okay. Uh, there's no limit to the amount of times that the individual can request portability. And would you recommend that each time they request, first time for sure, I know mm -hmm. the USCIS has stated in various memos in defining and interpreting AC21 that we expect you to notify us. Right. Would you notify them each time the person changes employers? Um, generally we would, but keep in mind that uh, the green card process is for permanent employment. So, you know, in this kind of economy, people might be bouncing around a lot. And certainly if you're only spending a few months with each employer, then maybe, you know, notifying the USCIS every few months that you're with a new permanent employer does may not look too good. But certainly if it looks like you're going to be staying there for a while, then go ahead yeah. and do AC21. It's a very again. good point. And I tell people a lot of times, wait two or three months before you actually file the notification and paperwork. And even if by chance one is fortunate enough to get the 485 approval, it may not be a bad idea to continue the AC21 notification yes, so exactly. that this does not come back to haunt the person when they apply for U.S. citizenship. So there's no issue of fraud, misrepresentation, or using employment. Employer A, when actually you were working with employee B, employer B, because you got the green card based on what the USCIS thought you were working for employer A. Aaron, is there any grace period for an employee within which the employee has to find a new job to request portability after termination? No, it's a great question, and I'm going to answer it, but I want to come back real quickly to one thing that Janelle had said. You know, we talk about self-petitioning. Can an employer, can an employee self-petition? And we answered yes, but I want to be very clear. There are no regulations on AC21 law. There's only USCIS guidance. And the reason why I say this is because what's considered same or similar, we've written a lot of articles about. But when you're, self, when you're doing self-employment, when you're paying the bills and covering the electrical bill and covering the cost for employees and for marketing and for everything else, and you're trying to justify that you're in the same occupation, for example, as an electrical engineer or a software engineer or somebody that's designing, developing, testing, coding, anything like this, the more you're doing to run the company and the less you're doing in that range, the more difficult it's going to be able to prove same or similar occupation. So self-employment sounds exciting, but it has to be done in a very cautious, very careful type of manner. To answer your question about the grace period, Sheila, um, when a person is terminated, generally there's no grace period. So the best advice is for the person to find a job as soon as possible in the same or similar occupation and move over. 
However, one should bear in mind that if the person is in the United States, based on a non-frivolous, a legitimate F-485 application that's pending, the person is definitely considered in a period of authorized stay and therefore is not accruing unlawful presence towards future inadmissibility. And even if there's a gap until they find the employment and file AC-21, they should still be okay. Okay. Janelle, is an employer required to withdraw a pending I-140 after termination? Terminating employment? Uh, the answer is no. The employer, uh, there is no legal requirement for the employer to withdraw a pending I-140. In fact, uh, withdrawing a pending I-140 could be quite damaging to uh, the employee's portability under AC-21. This is because the I-140 uh, would not have been approved and the USCIS uh, may not be able to or may refuse to determine that the I-140 was approvable when filed. Okay, and Aaron, if an, is an employer required to respond to any RFEs on the I-140 after an employee has already been terminated? There's no requirement to respond to an RFE ever. If you don't want to continue with an I-140 petition or if an employee is terminated and you no longer intend to respond, you no longer intend to sponsor them, uh, no, you have no requirement to respond to the, to the I-140, to the RFE. However, it is a good practice Many times, if you know that the employee is intending to do AC-21, uh, it's a good practice. It shows good faith. It shows a reasonableness to notify the employee of the RFE and to allow the employee perhaps to respond to the RFE along with you notifying of the AC-21. Um, I think it's good for the company and I also good for the company from a public relations standpoint. And I certainly think that it's good for the employee from a point of view of trying to maintain and to keep their AC-21 options alive. And it is a little bit of a problem because the I-140 petition, as we all know, is employer-filed. It's an employer-based petition, the labor and I-140. Only the 485 is considered the employee and the employee's property by law. And it can become very difficult because if the employer is either going out of business, doesn't have the funds, it's very difficult to answer saying, yes, I have the money to pay the wages if an employer doesn't have the, the, the funds or the contracts. So, so one has to be very careful, and this is where some creative guidance, knowledgeable help of people, a good, smart legal team on your side uh, will actually save you time, effort, energy, and a lot of uh, provide a lot of peace of mind for you. Uh, I also want to explain briefly that the employer is not required, as a sort of follow-up to what Aaron and Janelle have just explained, employer is not required by law to revoke an approved I-140 petition uh, after terminating the employee. Uh, from the employment, or even if the employee were to quit voluntarily, this is very, very different than what happens in the H-1B context, where by law there is an obligation for the employer to revoke the H-1B petition and the LCA, as Aaron had explained initially when we started today's teleconference. So even if the approved I-140 is revoked after the sponsored employee's I-140 has been pending for 180 days or longer, According to the law, AC-21 portability for adjustment of status should be uh, invoked and accordingly should be argued. And we at the Murthy Law Firm have been very successful in fighting and winning a lot of cases where the USCIS has issued a notice of intention to deny and threaten to revoke or cancel the 485. And we have argued that, hey, this is not fair, this is not right. The law gives the person the right to switch especially after the I-140 has already been approved and the I-485 must be approved even if there is an actual full denial of the 485 or a notice of intent to deny or annoy it. 
Uh, Janelle, are there any instances where the employer is forced to withdraw the pending or already approved I-140? Uh, sure, Sheila. I, I, I can think of some instances. Uh, basically, when a company has filed multiple I-140 petitions for different employees, uh, it could be that some of those I-140s have already been approved, but then there's some that are still pending for other employees. Now, that company may get an RFE from the USCIS where they're asking them about um, ability to pay. Prove to us that you have the ability to pay for all these employees that you filed for. In that situation, if the company files uh, finds that um, perhaps they don't have the financial resources to pay for all those employees, then the company may feel uh, that they need to withdraw the petitions for those employees who have now moved on so that basically they can focus on the employees who are still with them. Okay. Uh, to be able to salvage those employees' I-140s, they may have to withdraw the ones of the people who have already moved on. Okay, that's helpful. And I know we're very cognizant of the time that we like to have these sessions in the teleconferences for between 30 and 45 minutes. And I see we're getting very close to the time, but we just have one or two very important points that we need to wrap up. I see Aaron is dying to say something, so Aaron has 30 seconds, and I have 30 seconds just to wrap up. Aaron? Well, first of all, thank you for taking the time out of your busy day to um, listen to our teleconference. We hope this was helpful. The Murthy Law Firm has a real understanding, and we have a real sympathy for company and employees that are struggling through these types of issues uh, in this less than normal, these strange times. Uh, we, we've been doing this type of work for over a decade and a half, and I'm confident that if somebody needs our help, that if an employee or an employer needs our help, to, um, to navigate these difficult waters, to show you the best and the proper solutions to do to make things work that we can take very good care of you. Well, thank you, Aaron, and I'm glad you made me feel much younger by saying a decade and a half, although the firm was started about a decade and a half. In fact, I've been practicing immigration law for over 20 years. But she I doesn't don't mind, look it. <laughs> Not at I don't all. mind looking younger. Um, and, and before we go, let me also take this opportunity to wish you, your loved ones, your families a very, very happy new year for 2009 and beyond. Uh, I think all of us hope and pray that 2009 will be a much better year for mm -hmm. the economy and for all of us. Uh, again, on behalf of myself, Sheila Murthy, and my two brilliant, wonderful, esteemed colleagues, Aaron Finkelstein and Janelle Oklu, we thank you for participating in today's teleconference. We're always honored and delighted to be able to share ideas, help you, guide you, give you suggestions and variations. What we explain to you is barely touching the tip of the iceberg. There are multiple layers of complexities in each of these issues that we could spend a whole day with you analyzing and going through, but it's always a pleasure and an honor to help you, to guide you, to guide your business, to help you and your family as you go through this very painful and sometimes exhilarating process uh, of whether it's your H1 or your green card. Uh, again, to remind you a small technical uh, reminder that this is copyrighted material of the Murthy Law Firm. Uh, no recording is permissible. If you have done so, you need to delete this immediately because it is a violation of the law. Thank you so much for sharing your valuable time in the middle of the day. We at the Murthy Law Firm, each of us, myself and my staff, wish you, your loved ones, a happy 2009. And we look forward to taking care of you and your immigration work. Uh, we know your immigration matters. Have a terrific year. Bye-bye.